So we were talking about um, your article the other day. Shut up! I think it's the one "Shut Up and Train the Dog," and we were talking about the the term. I don't know if it, you said it was your term or if it was a term that one of your friends came up with, which was fire hosing um, clients, where you just kind of throw loads of information at them and they've got no chance to kind of take it all in. Uh, that term actually came from my days back in uh, technology. I used to be an IT consultant for many years, finishing up with Microsoft in the early 2000s. There was a fellow that we worked with, Herb, back in the uh, early 1990s. Um, and the term was coined by everyone who knew Herb because Herb was one of those guys, if you if you just sort of popped in and said, you know, Herb, I need to know how this program moves data from this place to this place. Herb would give you the entire history of that programming language before yeah. ever answering your question. And it would come out of his mouth at such a rate, and it would have enough interesting components that you'd want to listen, but you'd be 15 minutes into an answer and nowhere near what you had asked him. Uh-huh. So that's where the term fire hosing came from in my history. So it's just basically this huge volume of pretty much useful information, but it's too much, too fast, and you you don't have time to digest it all as more is coming at you. So, I mean, eventually he would get to the point of your question, and then you'd have to sort through this tremendous volume of stuff he's been throwing at you for the last 15 minutes or so. So that's where the term comes from, and uh, I see that there's, the at least from my standpoint, there's a lot of potential for me to do that to dog clients because of all of the reading that I've done on behavior and learning theory and operant conditioning, classical conditioning. There's there's so much opportunity for me when they say, my dog's not sitting. What am I doing wrong? Well, I could give them a two-hour seminar on the quadrants of operant conditioning. Uh-huh. Are you all right? You sound like you're wrestling over there. I had a, the little dog, uh, Louis, my girlfriend's <laughs> dog, just got under the table and I was trying to move him out as quietly as possible, but it's, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, so I think a lot of dog trainers are guilty of that. Um, you know, someone asks them a question and they just kind of explode on that person. And actually, it comes back to when we were talking about crossover training the other day and how I think it was one of your blogs again. Um, how people that have just crossed over can become so fanatical that the slightest thing sets them on this huge rant about positive training and, and etc. Well, that's sort of another dimension to this. You know, as uh, a progressive trainer who's learned all of the science-based approaches to things, I have a tremendous amount of information I can attempt to pass on to someone. But as a crossover trainer, there's also this body of information I have as to why what I used to do is a bad idea. So I could fire hose you with all the good ideas, or I could fire hose you with why what you're doing is a bad idea. So now there's twice the volume and still only one small hose to use. So I have Uh to be very careful about what I choose to get into um, when talking to someone who may not be ready for that kind of volume of information. So, yeah, I mean, being a crossover adds a whole separate dimension to that because I can tell you why force training does work and why it's a bad thing in the long run. Sure. Um, And how do you, I mean, when you're a dog trainer, you're essentially educating people on the subject of dog training. How do you feel like is a better approach than just throwing all of this information at them? Well, especially when you, sorry. No, uh, go ahead. Finish your question. I was going to say, especially when you're faced with something where you're seeing so many, and I I hate to use the term, kind of bad things about how someone's approaching a situation. Well, it, it's a struggle, and we talked about this a bit earlier in the week by phone um, when we were discussing Shirak Patel. Um, I, I think there really is a challenge that all of us who are trying to educate other dog owners have in that we we need them to do the right thing with their dog. And by the right thing, I mean the most effective and the most productive way to interact with their dog. And the, ten, the tendency there is to explain to them why it's a good idea to do that. 
unfortunately, what the dog owner really wants is just tell me what to do. Uh, I don't really care why it works. I just want to just tell me what to do. But Mm -hmm. you and I and other trainers know that that's not sufficient. It gets back to that old Chinese proverb, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. We all are trying to teach people to fish, if you will. We're trying to teach them how to use the science that we already know, and they may not be in a receptive state to want to know that. So we're always walking this balance of trying to teach people to do the right thing, and sometimes we ask them to do those things for the wrong reasons. Not necessarily wrong in the sense that we're incorrect. We're just not giving them the whole story. We're Mm -hmm. we're just saying, this is what you need to do right now, and I'll tell you later why we're doing it. Just, Just for now, do it. And I, mm-hmm. and I think the, the real temptation is that that can be pretty effective. But if we never get to the I'll tell you later part, I think we're really doing ourselves and the dog owner a disservice because we're not helping them learn to be able to extrapolate and use the knowledge we're giving them in new and different ways. Sure. I think some people isolate parts of that information and give it to the dog owner and not giving them the full story in a way of trying to combat that fire hosing and just overwhelming them. Well, exactly. I I think that is ultimately the challenge of what being a dog trainer means today, particularly being a progressive dog trainer, where we're trying to communicate what is basically a paradigm shift. It's a different way of looking at dogs and their capabilities and the relationship. And then you layer on top of it all of the behavioral science that we have good data for and shows us that this is an effective way to teach animals. And then there's the whole layer on top of that of being an educator. And many people who are in dog training have not gone to university to learn how to be a a teacher or a professor. So we're all sort of making it up as we go, and we're all trying to find that balance between keeping the dog owner's attention and keeping them engaged and passing on as much of that information as they can handle. So, you know, we're all sort of (laughs) adjusting the pressure on that fire hose to see just how much we can get away with. That's an interesting point you make, because, I mean, I know... A minority of trainers that that have taken the effort to educate themselves on how is best to educate people, um, but it still isn't really something that's done by the majority of people. Um, I, I wonder if there would be any kind of benefits to adding that into kind of dog trainer education, because obviously when you, you're going to be a dog trainer, you kind of educate yourself through whatever means, whatever courses, etc. But I mean, I've been on a few courses and workshops, etc., um, and the subject doesn't really come up very much of how to teach people. Well, and I think it's a tricky thing. Um, it, uh, uh, personally, most of my work with dog owners comes in a one-to-one situation. That's just the way my practice seems to have gone. I don't teach many group classes. I have difficulty with group classes because I'm not good at sort of keeping everybody on the same page and I mean I can talk to groups just fine I spent many years in the technology industry as a public speaker for communicating complex ideas so I know how to do that to a group but when you're doing interactive stuff I think it's a separate thing so um, my work in the technology industry as a consultant has helped me there because that process taught me that really what I'm doing when I'm working one-on-one with somebody is I'm selling confidence I'm selling them that it's all going to be okay, we can handle this, it's all going to come out right, I know what I'm doing, I can help you get there too. And then whatever the topic is kind of sits on top of that. If I don't take care of the underlying good technique of being a consultant, I lose their confidence, I lose their interest, uh, I make them nervous, and there's all that sort of stuff. So I think it's what you're suggesting is a good idea, but it's difficult because of the the differences in the way all of these different venues present themselves. Uh, one-on-one behavior consults are different than one-on-one manners training, which is different than a group manners class, which is different than a group agility class. So how do you know which skills are applicable for which thing? And 
you know, who, who determines what that class or recommended class should be. So, I, I mean, right now, all of us are sort of bringing whatever we've had in our personal lives to bear to various degrees of success, I suppose. Uh, and, and I guess it's a good question when you look at people like the APDT or the PPG or Karen Pryor Academy or whoever it is, um, what's what's their recommended course for teaching people how to teach people yeah i think that that's really important but like i said it seems to be underrepresented when you're going for your kind of education as a dog trainer well i will plug my friend reese van fleet's book uh the human half of dog training it's funny you mentioned that because i was just thinking that yeah um also nicole wilde has a couple of great books on teaching people and as a dog trainer, how we go about teaching people and recognizing personalities. Uh, and Terry Ryan also has a book, the title of which I don't recall exactly off the top of my head, but it's, you know, um, coaching people to teach their dogs or something along those lines. It's a book I have in my library that's also very good. So I think there are dog people who have made an attempt at addressing these questions. And I think any dog trainer worth their salt would do well to to go out and find those resources. Yeah, I, I, I remember reading that Reese Van Fleet book the first time, and it definitely was very eye-opening to me. I thought that was a brilliant book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, more of that kind of stuff, I think, would certainly help the community as a whole. What What's interesting as well is um, how nasty the dog training community can be to each other um, and how that kind of uh, compares with the skills that we were supposed to know in in terms of communication skills and talking to each other and teaching people stuff. It's, it seems like a strange comparison. Um, yes and no. Uh, this is another one of those things that um, throws me back to my technology days. Um, I have uh, w- when I was new to being a consultant, we, my wife and I were both consultants at the same time in roughly the same network technology back in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, and we used to classify our colleagues into Type A consultants and Type B consultants. Type A consultants were very keen on making sure that their clients knew that they knew all the answers and that when they had a problem, they had to come to them and they would sweep in and they would provide the answer and make the thing work again. And then they would go away without ever educating the client on what actually happened. And then there were type B consultants who would come in and they would work on the problem with the client and they would make sure the client understood what was happening every step of the way. And, when they left, the client would be smarter than when they arrived. And the distinction we always made is that type A clients were making their money based on the fact that they had something the client needed, the answers, and without them, they were dead. Mm-hmm. But type B consultants, their value was they, they were giving something to the client every time. They were educating the client. So the type A consultant was always depending on the fact that their clients were uh, sufficiently ignorant to need them, whereas type B consultants were constantly being pushed to stay smarter and more flexible and look for more clients. So we always felt it was more difficult but more satisfying to be a type B consultant than a type A consultant. And I see that happening in the dog world as well. I see people who like to have the answers and they don't want clients to get too smart. Just do what I tell you and don't ask me questions. And then I see the genuine people who are trying to educate clients and and really don't want someone to be coming back to them year after year with new problems. They want them to grow and become better dog owners. So yeah. I, I think that dynamic is part of what you're talking about in terms of the, the headbutting that goes on. I think you've got those two personality types. Plus, I think there's also an economic component. I'm very lucky in my life in that I've had a successful career in technology, and dog training is not something I depend upon to feed myself or for my mortgage. So, you know, it's something that 
you know, if I wanted to walk away from tomorrow, it would not impact my financial life significantly. So that makes me very different than a lot of dog trainers out there who are trying to make car payments and make mortgages. And I think those people are forced to make more compromises or do things that I necessarily might not choose to do because I have more freedom. So I, I think those different economic situations also create some tension between people who maybe are saying you shouldn't do that because of ethical reasons and other people are saying, well, I've got to make compromises because I've got to feed my family. Uh-huh. To me, it seems very – the dog training world seems very clicky and almost very culty. You know, you have positive training versus – forceful training or aversive training but then even deeper than that you have kind of sub cults or sub clicks of kind of the various associations and how people can get really into them and their association is the best and you have to be a member and if you're not a member then you're not a true behaviorist or you're not a true dog trainer and i mean sometimes i mean obviously as a someone that's on Facebook, I'm I'm in a lot of the groups, and sometimes it can be really cringy. Um, even if the group is is well-meaning, the kind of devotedness to that to that kind of little group is can really be quite, like I said, really quite cringy and quite off-putting. Well, uh, in late 2014, I had a couple of unfortunate situations. Um, Hang on a second. <laughs> My wife had to show me a note. <laughs> okay, that's all right. Um, I had a couple of situations in 2014 in Facebook groups where um, I had offered up just, you know, here's some information on a particular topic, and people in that conversation came back at me both in direct messages privately and on the group with an attitude of, you know, how dare you make me look bad in a public forum? Uh And I found that very strange, um, partially, I think, because of my personality and my background, but uh, also because maybe I, I think of Facebook groups differently than other people do. But whatever, for whatever reason, I kind of hit my breaking point in January of 2015 and I've basically cut myself off from interacting and responding in Facebook groups just because of this weird dynamic in social media that seems to involve, as you say, clickishness and allies and egos and associations. And just uh, I don't have any time for that anymore. I mean, I'm looking to be the best trainer I know how to be. And I need to be able to say this is what I know. And I need to have people come back at me and say, well, I disagree with that and here's why, or that doesn't work and here's what I found or something. And if we can't get to those kinds of discussions without, well, who are you to tell me because you don't have thus and such certification or whatever, I don't want to talk about people. I don't want to talk about things. I want to talk about ideas. And, mm-hmm. and if Facebook has gotten to a place with the dog training world where it's too toxic for those discussions to happen. Well, then I either need to find someplace else to do it or just take these conversations personal and only talk with the people I know I can have reasoned discussions with. And I think that's unfortunate because uh, I know that those kinds of interactions have colored my view of a number of personalities in the dog world whose names I now see and run screaming from. Uh, and other people who I read their stuff religiously because I know that they're reasonable thinking people and and I get on with them quite well. But I, basically these days I keep my head down. Um, I'm a member of the APDT. I've supported the IAABC in the past. I was a PPG member and for various reasons no longer associate with that organization. Um, I don't think any of that should matter. Uh, I, I am a dog trainer. I've achieved what I've achieved. I have a body of work on the Internet. You can agree with it or not agree with it. That's fine. But if you want to have a reasoned discussion, I'm certainly open to that. But I'm not up for name-calling. Uh-huh. For me, I, I think I've taken it maybe even a step for, uh, step kind of more extreme in that um, I'm not associated with any associations anymore. Um, and I don't really want to be um i'm glad just to be 
out of it all. I've got my qualifications. I've got my, you know, you know, people can see my work and it speaks for itself. Um, but I, I can see what you're saying completely. It, a lot of it puts me off. Um, I, I think sometimes a lot of the associations don't offer as many benefits or as much kind of personal interaction as they kind of make out unless you're really deep in the circle and like I said kind of devoted to the association 100% well and I think there's um, I think there are things within associations that can be very rewarding for people um, feeling that they're a part of something larger than themselves contributing to what they see as an important cause that sort of thing that's not where I'm at at the moment. Um, I'm a member of the APDT, not particularly to take advantage of what the organization has to offer, but I see them as an organization that's attempting to create and distribute resources for dog trainers, and I, I, I want to support that. They're, they're sort of the largest organization of its kind, and if I can influence them through my dollars and my voice to be teaching the right things, I want to be able to contribute to that. Um, but beyond that, I have a, a CPDTKA certification, and, and I keep that up just for my client base to be comfortable that I actually know what I say I know. Um, but I think there are a lot of pe- reasons that people belong to those kinds of organizations, uh, and sometimes I think there is an ability for them to lose themselves in the belonging uh, and not remember what the purpose of the whole thing was. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm anti-associations. They're just not for me, really, right. anymore. Right. Um, and I think we largely agree there. Uh, I, the a, being an APDT member doesn't really do anything for my business or my credibility. Uh, I'm just hoping to contribute and be altruistic to the rest of the community through it. So um, that's re- and it, that's even. I mean, I could drop that in a in a heartbeat, but you know, I can afford the annual dues, and I and I like having a voice there. So, uh-huh. do you think? I mean, what is the goal of the dog training community as a whole? Are we trying to push more ethical, more positive training, or, I mean, where where we where do you think we're going? I mean, and is our associations, uh, do they play a role in that? I'm very, very skeptical of the use of the term ethical as regards dog training. Um, you mentioned Grisha Stewart. She has a great group on Facebook called, um, oh, I'm not going to pull it up on my screen, but it's something like uh, the cultural implications of positive dog training or something along those lines. But mm-hmm. the group is about exactly what you said. What What are we trying to do? With positive training as regards society as a whole, what, what, how do we do a, a better job of spreading the message? That's what the group is about. And she brought up that question of, you know, how do we deal with ethics and dog training when we're talking to people? And, and I don't think that that's a productive way to go about it. And you and I talked about this earlier in the week, and I'll restate it here. Um, I, I am not a progressive dog trainer because of moral reasons. I was faced with a situation with a dog back in 2001 where everything I had learned as a compulsion-based, aversive-based trainer from the monks of New Skeet and all that stuff was so obviously not working with my dog that we were within a week of having to return that dog to the breeder at 18 months old because it had become so aggressive towards us that we couldn't approach it while it was eating. Uh I needed to do something, and I was fortunately turned on to Jane Donaldson's Culture Clash and Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor and a number of, of other books that reset my thinking on dogs. And... I was at a place in my life where I simply said, all right, everything that I was doing was wrong. Just read the books, do what the books say, do it the way they say it, and if it doesn't work, we'll move on to something else. And it's 15 years later, and I haven't moved off of this because it has been the most effective and enlightening experience of my life. 
I use this kind of training not because it makes me a better person. I use this kind of training because I can communicate more effectively with my dogs and I have a better quality of life with my dogs and they have a better quality of life with me. And that's the way I choose to look at this question of which kind of training we should be using. It's not about being moral or humane or anything else. I can show you demonstrably that my dogs will learn behaviors faster and retain them longer and perform them with more enthusiasm than someone who has a dog with the same skills trained using aversives. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a dog who is on the verge of getting her sixth agility championship at 12 years old, still running five yards per second. Contemporaries of hers who were trained using more aversive methods have been retired for years because they simply burned out. So I can show you here is a dog that was trained using this stuff that performs at the same level that's purported by more aversive techniques. And she can do it longer, and she's happier doing it than those other dogs. Now, why does morals have to come into that discussion? Do you want my dog, or do you want that other dog that burned out five years ago? To me, um, I think that both are important. So we have the effectiveness of positive training, and that's a huge draw, and it's something that isn't spoke about enough. Because, And maybe this is where your frustration lies, because we talk about the ethics of positive dog training so much. But... To me, neither one of them cancels out each other. Both are extremely important. Um, well, the way, in, the way I like to put it is that although I came to this from a very logical and reasoned perspective to do a better job as a trainer, the side effect is that I have that very positive, humane, ethical, I can feel good about myself that I'm doing good things for my mm-hmm. dog. To me, that's a side effect. It's not the primary reason. So you're right. It, they they are not mutually exclusive. So, but even in a hypothetical situation where, let's say we live in an alternate world where aversive training is more effective, it gets faster results, then I'm still going to be with the humane camp, still trying to make that better as a as a as a philosophy. Well, see, this is where we sort of step into some dodgy territory. <laughs> and, and and the reason I say that is uh, I believe the dogs first and foremost. Um, one of the more interesting stories I have from my background is, I don't know if you know who Steve White is. Um, yeah. Steve is a, a positive trainer who used to do um, police training, canine uh, training for police departments. And because of that, he had exposure. I saw a seminar with him a few years back. And he told this story that he said um, uh, he has exposure to shock collar companies based on the work that he used to do and that he still frequently gets invitations to weekend workshops and that occasionally he will go to those weekend workshops just to see what the state of that kind of training is. Um, And he said it always amazed him that of the 20 or so working spots that they have with people and their dogs, there are at least two or three dogs that come away from that shock collar weekend happier than when they arrived. And he said the reason for that is that for the first time in their lives, these poor dogs are finally getting clear communication because the person teaching the workshop is being very rigorous about when you push that button and when you don't. But rather than being confused and all over the map and inconsistent about their cues, these two or three trainers are now employing their tools in a consistent manner and the dog is feeling some comfort that they have some level of control. So that gets to your question about aversive training. If it makes the dog happier, what's more humane? And that's why I say we have to listen to the dog. In my case... My dogs were clearly unhappy with aversive training. My application of this kind of training has made them immensely happy. So, you know, I think there's a a fair amount of cognitive bias that comes into this. I mean, if you're an advocate for aversive training, you'll see happiness where maybe there isn't happiness in a dog. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not going to claim that, you know, you could make that argument. But, 
you know, I have seen people do a bad job of positive training. And I've seen dogs very frustrated and very confused from bad positive training. And I've seen dogs that are relatively content with the few things they're being asked from aversive training. So I, I don't think it's black and white, which is why I like to stay away from the ethical argument. Sure. But in a workshop with 20 dogs, if two or three are coming away more happy, is that really a, a percentage to be proud of? Uh, no, but I, I don't think Steve was saying that the other 17 were going away more miserable. So it's it's not like it was one or the other. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the only point I was making is that, you know, dogs can be made happy through methods that we could sort of logically argue are, you know, not unpleasant. And yet they're in a circumstance where it makes them feel better. And, and I do think that we need to pay attention to the dog. So by this, I'm saying, all right, maybe those two or three people came away from that shock collar seminar with an improvement. But the improvement, in Mm -hmm. my mind, was not from the shock collar. It was from the consistency. So if I can can get the dog owner on that point, okay, it's consistently, consistency. What can we do with consistency maybe beyond the shock collar? Can we make your dog even happier if we can be more consistent with our cueing, with our reward system, maybe we can get rid of that shock collar altogether if we just focus on the consistency part of it. So if I focus on helping them improve as a trainer as opposed to trying to change their moral compass, will I get better traction and more engagement from the trainer? Do you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying, and I think that's certainly a way to approach someone that's already in that camp of aversive training. Certainly, that's going to be a more effective way than going in and setting them on the defensive straight away by saying what they're doing isn't ethical. Um, But I think at the same time, we have to ask, why are those dogs happier leaving the workshop? Is it because now the techniques that are being used are, like you say, more consistent, uh, more clear, and instead of just being punished for something the dog can't understand or or having aversive used on it and the dog just doesn't know how to avoid it, now the dog has a method. And then is that really a... It, it, I mean, in the if there wasn't aversives in the first place, then would that dog be happier leaving the workshop? Well, see, uh, it's unfortunate you phrased it that way because it puts me in mind of nature. There are always aversives. My dog does not like to go out in the rain, and yet on rainy days she has to go out to pee. So she is going to have to learn to tolerate the aversive of rain on her little head. Mm-hmm. So there are always going to be aversives. Sure, but by the use of aversives I'm I'm talking about leash corrections, maybe the e-collar or electric collar not being used correctly in the past, maybe prong collars, maybe choke chains, etc and maybe it's because now the dog has learned via i and i use the term hesitantly but correct electric dog training whether the dog can understand how to avoid the electric collar or the electric shock maybe now that's why the dog's happier because it's not just being punished for reasons that it can't understand well i i tend to think of it in terms of either rewarding the behavior you want or punishing the behavior that you don't want. Um, I tend to think of what we used to call clicker training. We now call mark and reward training because there are other markers than clickers. Um, So we do mark and reward training with our dogs. We're trying to encourage the behavior we want. What's the opposite of mark and reward training? And to my mind, it's test and punish. So Mm -hmm. sit. Did the dog sit? No. Punish. It's test and punish. That's what we talk about generally, I think, when we say aversive or compulsion training. One of the interesting conversations I've had with people who prefer that kind of training is to ask them what behavior they're actually punishing. And the answer is almost invariably, well, they didn't do what I ask. So in essence, you're punishing anything other than the behavior you want? Yes, well, what does that do to your dog's willingness to offer you anything in the future? Well, if it were me, 
I wouldn't do anything unless I were absolutely sure I wasn't going to get punished for it. But I've been punished for so many things in the past, that's pretty dicey. So I better be really, really sure that it's okay. So essentially what you've gotten into now is just behave, general behavior suppression unless the dog knows what they want or, or knows what you want. Mm-hmm. And and I think I've wandered into a corner that I don't know how I got here or why. So maybe that's you, all right. that's okay. you can remind me maybe why I was here. Well, we'll move on because I, I was going to say I completely agree with what you're saying. And that's why I always say to people um, that it's much quicker to train a dog what you want than it is to trade it all of the things that you don't want. Well, yeah, I, actually, I use Gene Donaldson's uh, analogy that dogs have a brain about the size of a lemon. So if you could fill that with all the things you want versus all the things you don't want, what's the smaller list? Uh-huh. <laughs> so con- <laughs> concentrate on the smaller list. Yeah. Um, we were talking about scent work as well, and you were saying that you've you've been doing forms of scent work for about five years now yeah my wife has been doing um search and rescue tracking with our younger dog rizzo um Uh she also did it with vince the the crossover dog we had um my dog tira is just not really interested in scent work well i should i shouldn't say that up until the last year or so when since she turned about 10 or 11 years old she really was not that interested in using her nose for anything uh we did take her through a steve white seminar and she just didn't have the attention span for it. She wouldn't stay on a scent for more than 15 or 20 seconds, and she'd be bored. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you want to know about that? Well, I was just going to say, what kind of got you started in scent work? Uh, well, <laughs> what got us started in scent work was the same thing that got us started in herding and rally and agility and everything else. Uh-huh. This kind of training, this progressive reward-based training that we've gotten into um, has been so fascinating for us that we've been eager to try it out in as many different disciplines and and ways as we can. Uh, I'm considering with my next dog, which hopefully will be a Belgian again, um, going into ring sport and using Mm -hmm. positive training there. I know there are people who have had success with... um, reward-based training in that venue. I'm, I'm keen to see just how much we can teach our dogs using this kind of technology. And so far, it seems limitless. You know, Bob Bailey is famous for saying that if a dog is physically capable of something, then you can train it to do that. And my experience has been that he's exactly right. It, the limitations currently in our house have to do with us as trainers, can we come up with ways to communicate what we need our dogs to do? Mm-hmm. When you say ring sport, is that like um, uh, Schutzen. confirmation? By, oh, Schutzen. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, all right. Fair enough. I was thinking when you were saying that, I was thinking of um, uh, confirmation. Oh, that, you know, that's like easy. That's crafts just, and dog shows and all that standing kind of there. <laughs> yeah, it's like I. Well, you say that, but there's been a movement with clicker training to teach them to pose without having to just maneuver them into those positions. Oh, absolutely. And why not? It's certainly easy enough to do. Uh-huh. You know, I, I would much rather ask my dog to do something with me than force my dog to do it for me. Sure. I mean, one of the interesting things that came about in the agility world for me was I have a fast dog. She, in her younger days, used to run at close to 25 kilometers an hour on a course when she was flat out. And with a spacing of roughly three meters or four meters between obstacles, I don't have a lot of time to tell her what's next. So I actually had to teach her to respond to more than one cue in succession. So if I said to my dog, spin down, I would expect her to spin and then lie down. So execute the cues in the order I give them to you. So I could say tunnel jump or tunnel weave, and she would know what what was coming. And I had to train that because I don't think dogs come out of the box knowing how to sequence things. Ken Ramirez actually does a really good talk on that concept, which he calls sequential adduction, that you should be able to say, okay, hang on a second. I need you to do A, B, and C, go. And the dog should execute those behaviors in order. And he's had success teaching 
dogs up to and including, I think, four or five different behaviors in a sequence. I've only used two in agility back-to-back. But it was a skill I needed to teach my dog just out of necessity. I, As a human, I literally couldn't get the cues out in a timely fashion to smooth out the runs. So I came up with this other method of sort of pre-cueing. Now, if you had asked me 10 years ago, do you think a dog would be capable of that, I would have said no. Mm-hmm. But having learned about this way of training, I thought it's worth a shot. Let, let's let's see. And I'm stunned to find that Ken Ramirez has also done work with uh, dogs counting. Dogs have been able, shown to be able now to count as high as nine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also taught dogs to copy one another. So, you know, basically his cue to the dog is whatever the dog next to you does, do that. Mm-hmm. And so, that rem- go ahead. That reminds me of, um, I'm probably going to get a name wrong, but I think it's Claudia Fugazza. Right. Um, the do as I do. Doing very similar work. Her work includes both um, mimicking, but in her case, it's copy a human. So there's an extra component of having to map the dog's perception of their own body parts to the human body parts. For example, if I pick up something off the table, my dog obviously doesn't have thumbs, so they have to know that they need to use their mouth and not their hand. Um, But she's also doing the sequential adduction that Ken Ramirez has done work with, where she tells the dog to watch, she does her three or four things, and then the dog goes and executes those things. So she actually is using a combination of copy me and do the behaviors in this order and having great success. So obviously we're, we're, we're expanding our understanding of what dogs are capable of with this kind of training. And uh, this kind of gets back to your original question. Why did we get into scent work? Well, what can't you teach a dog to do? So we're just kind of having fun teaching them all kinds of things. I think that that sequential thing is is absolutely fascinating. You've got me thinking about it now, and I've, I've, you probably haven't got time to to kind of go into it. But I wanted to ask you how how did you get started on that? That sounds amazing. Uh, it's it's actually not as difficult as you think. Um, it, it's you you I I always start with two known behaviors. So obviously I've taught my dog to spin and I've taught my dog to do a down. So they have to both be behaviors that have been heavily rewarded in the past. So they're willing to do them almost without thinking. So it becomes a a point where I will, uh, I'll start with doing the two cues in a staggered way. So I'll say spin and while the dog is spinning, I'll, I'll say down. So she'll be finishing her spin. She'll hopefully have processed the down and usually she'll just stand and look at me and I'll wait. And if necessary, I'll repeat the down cue early on in the process. But fairly quickly, after a few reps, you say spin down while the dog is spinning, and the dog realizes, oh, I should do it down now. And then you mm-hmm. do spin down. You, you get the cues closer together. And then you know, before she can spin, she's already heard down. But she's already done the behaviors together like that a couple of times. And then once you've got spin down... Now you can say, go around, sit. Mm -hmm. So I I need you to go around and sit. So essentially, you're teaching the concept of, I need you to do these things in the order you hear them, Mm -hmm. which is a concept as opposed to a behavior. Sit and go around are both behaviors. But to say, to say, sit, to say, go around, sit almost sounds like a contradiction. You know, from the dog's perspective. So you you have to go about that process of staggering them slightly and then bringing the cues closer and closer together. Now, in Ken Ramirez's work, and I think in Claudia Fugaz's work, it's slightly different. They actually create a cue that says, hang on a minute and listen to me. So in Ken's case, it's wait, and then he gives the three cues he wants, and then he has a release. I don't have that because that's not how agility works. I need to be able to fire off these cues in the midst of a course. So there is no wait. You just have to keep going. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, otherwise you would have to start at the start of the agility course and, and tell them the order of the obstacles, wouldn't you? Right, and I'm not certain I could get <laughs> I'm not certain I could get 22 cues to stack up. That's that's kind of sure. a tall order, right? Um, so what I'm doing is different uh, in context to what they're doing. So I'm not really sort of pushing the boundaries of cognition the way that Claudia and Ken are. Um, but this is a practical application that's worked very well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's that. I hope that helped. Yeah, that well, yeah, definitely. We explained that really well. Um, and actually, that, something that we talked about earlier this week that uh, I'll bring up because it's kind of the same thing, and it relates to agility again, is the notion of teaching persistence as a concept. And in that case, what I'm asking for is my dog to to respond to four, five, six, seven cues before receiving a mark and reward. And mm-hmm. and that was a concept that I needed to teach my dog because essentially an agility course is 20 to 25 cues for obstacles before we get to the end and I can pay her. So mm-hmm. I don't think you I don't think it's reasonable to expect a dog to go out on the first day of agility and and ask for 20 behaviors. So in my living room, I would ask for sit, pay my dog. Sit, down, behind, pay my dog. So I would ask for one, then two, then three, then one again, then five, then two, then seven, then four, then one. And I would vary the number of cues I would give and expected responses to those cues and sort of gradually build up how many cues I could give, depending on pre-MAC as a concept for her to understand that so long as she's being cued for new behaviors, we are on the way to the reward and there is a guaranteed payoff at the end. Mm -hmm. So in effect, I'm teaching you to keep going. I'm good for it at the end. Just stay with me. Is the sequential training... um is that done widely over the dog sports now, or is that something that's just coming in? Um, I don't know of anyone else who's teaching it, and and I wow. and I generally don't teach it to people unless mm-hmm. I've got a dog owner who is particularly versed in all of the various things. Because I think you can mess it up, right? If you don't really understand um, uh proper technique for managing schedules of reward, I think you can frustrate a dog tremendously. Uh, if you don't know how to fade and prompt and add a little more and take a little away and find that sweet spot for the dog's learning. So I, I don't really talk about this with someone unless I see that they have the skills to pull it off. Sure. I, I don't think it's something you can teach by rote because it really is very much a by feel thing. Uh-huh. I don't want my dog confused. I don't want my dog to get frustrated. Um, but I also need to push the learning forward. So I, I have to, well, I guess it's partially the dog, partially the trainer. The dog has to have enough persistence to stay with me and to keep trying. And as a trainer, I have to be smart enough to know when I need to help a little more and when I need to back off and let her learn. And it's it's, we would, it's the same thing with the persistence training too, right? I mean, if uh, Tira had a little squeak that she would make when she was getting frustrated, like, when are we going to get paid? Um, so as an eight-month-old puppy, you know, by the sixth or seventh behavior, I'd start to get the squeak, and that's when I'd pay off. Uh, I think the last time we tested her uh, was probably two years ago. Uh, we got 32 behaviors before the squeak. Sure. We were talking about um, how the behavior – well, the activity of agility, scent work, etc., can be rewarding for some dogs. Do you find, I, I, I assume you teach agility to people as well? Yes. Is that right? Do you find that some dogs don't find the activity rewarding and therefore don't really um, excel in agility? Or whatever it is. Kind of a complicated question because I think there is a genetic component at play. I think that there are certain breeds that are predisposed to be biochemically reinforced for certain activities. But I think by and large, and I would say probably as much as 80% of enjoyment of these activities is conditioned. 
how mm-hmm. how do they go about engaging in these activities? Uh, agility is one of those activities that is really easy to mess up. You've got a sequence of six obstacles that you're supposed to take, and there are always extra obstacles out there, and you can signal your dog, and they can take the wrong obstacle. And whose fault is that? Did the dog see your cue and decide, no, I want to do this instead? Or did they really think you meant that other thing? People too often, when a sequence fails to go properly, will sort of take it out on the dog. You went to the wrong place. I very clearly showed you where I wanted you to go. And then when you watch back video of it, it's it's clear that they didn't give them the correct cue. But they they blame the dog. So the dog has this experience of even mild punishment in the sense that maybe it's negative punishment in that the dog the, the trainer's attention is taken away or they see the trainer's shoulders drop or they see the disappointment and there's sort of a negative punishment aspect to that. If that happens enough, the dog is not enjoying the process of agility because the human is upset with them more often than they're comfortable with. Do you see what I'm saying? So I I think the whole process of being in the activity from the dog's perspective is part of the conditioning process. How often are they being rewarded? How much can they count on the affection of their trainer? How much connection is there with their trainer? Um, are they being asked for more than they are physically or mentally capable of doing? Are they being are they being stressed? Are they being frustrated and confused beyond their limits? What is the experience like? Do they enjoy the whole time? Is it a big party for them? Um, or does it start off like a party and it turns out to be you know this overly long yoga class that we really wish was over now? You mentioned there um, certain breeds finding certain activities um, quite intrinsically rewarding. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's why we see um, breeds associated with certain activities? Like we always associate collies with agility, um, or we always associate kind of German Shepherds and Malinois with IPO and Schutzhund. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And also, uh, what do you think that should also then? discourage or do you think that's also discouraging for people that don't have those breeds to go into those activities i don't know that it's discouraging but i think it is always prudent to know what you're what you have going in if you have a boxer and you're going into agility don't expect the same performance that a border collie is going to give you if you have a poodle and you're going into schutzhund don't expect the same behavior a malinois is going to give you so as long as you manage your expectations, I don't know that it should dissuade you unless the dog is clearly showing you that they'd rather not be doing this. Um, mm-hmm. There is scientific evidence to show that um, certain breeds of dogs, like Belgians and German Shepherds, actually do get an endorphin release doing bite work. So there's that biochemical reinforcer. Uh, I presume it's the same with border collies engaging in things that are very similar to herding behavior that they're genetically wired for. So, yeah, I mean, I think terriers get a rush out of doing uh, earthwork or barn hunt activities where they're, you know, seeking out rodents. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you can engage in sports and activities that may not be um, in the wheelhouse of your breed, so long as you're aware of that going in and you're not having unrealistic expectations for performance, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Do you not think that uh, the ability of the trainer or the handler can make up for some of those kind of inefficiencies of that breed? To a degree. To a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. We have Belgians. Belgians are not known in the agility world as a particularly successful breed because they're at least to the minds of some people, they're difficult to train. Um, they they will not work like a border collie all day long. You very carefully have to keep them interested and engaged, and you can't repeat things a lot of times or they get bored. Um, they tend to be bitey when they're frustrated, so they can be dangerous dogs when, it, I mean, if you're pushing them beyond where their limits are. And they don't run with the reckless abandon of border collies. But my wife had uh, uh, our six-year-old at the time, our six-year-old Belgian Vince, um, beat out four or five top 
Canadian Border Collies at a particular trial, not because he ran faster, but because he ran more efficiently. The Border Collies were running faster, but by virtue of that, they were taking these longer loops around turns where he was cutting very narrowly. So mm-hmm. our, Vince, on that particular day, was the successful dog not because he was not a Border Collie. But mm-hmm. it, the sport was designed for Border Collies. So in essence, you know, he wasn't running it, quote, the right way, unquote, but on that day he succeeded. So I don't know. It, 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 it's a tough question um, whether you should keep dogs in the activities to which they were um, genetically predisposed. Uh, I don't think a, a trainer is going to be able to make a every bit of a differentiation um, I like to think of it in terms of sliding scales if if a skill is say from 1 to 10 you know and your your dog is at a 6 well then a good trainer can get it to 10 but if your dog is at a, uh, at a 3 or a 4 well maybe a good trainer can get you to 7 or 8 mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying you'll you'll never your your schnauzer is never going to be as good as a border collie at agility. It's just not. That's not to say that it can't be great. And and I think the rules of most of these venues are flexible enough that you don't need to be, you know, the top breed, you know, the the absolute fastest ever to be successful. The bars are are lower than that. You know, you don't you don't have to be a blazing fast dog. Yeah, I guess what well, well, everyone has their own goals, but what really matters is that the dog's enjoying the activity. Exactly, maybe. exactly. I mean, so we, what? We have a friend who has a standard poodle who absolutely adores doing agility, absolutely mm-hmm. loves it. Not the fastest dog in the world, but has a couple of championships under her belt. Mm-hmm. So, I mean. Why would she not do that with a with a standard poodle? And, and trust me, it is that typical standard poodle with the poofy haircut and everything else, and always has yeah, ribbons sure. in her hair, and it's kind of funny. But she does uh-huh. she does really well, and she loves it. So why not? Uh-huh. Um, so you've got well, where I know you from is your blog, but also you you do like an audio version of the blog, don't you? Um, well, I used to. Uh, I used to do a, a podcast where I would basically read out my blog with a few comments on the beginning and on the end. I haven't done that for about a year. Um, okay. These days we're doing what we call a, a trainer's hangout, uh, which is four or five of us getting together once a month and just discussing a topic. And we've been releasing those on YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the sum total. I'm still doing my writing. Um mm-hmm. There is a plan in the works for me to do a book on crossing over in the next year or so. Okay, cool. Exciting. So that's where I am. So in terms of where people can find you, do you know what the YouTube channel is called off the top of your head? Canine Nation, I believe. Oh, it's just Canine Nation. Awesome. And also your website is caninenation.ca, is that right? .ca. Uh, you can also find me at caninenation.lifeasahuman.com. And that's all one word, life is a human. Mm-hmm. And then on Facebook, you're also Canine Nation. Uh, we have the Canine Nation page. There's also the Canine Nation forum discussion group. I am Eric Brad on Facebook. You can find me there. Uh-huh. All right. I, do you still use Twitter, Eric? I have never used Twitter. Oh, okay. That's I, strange because I thought I saw... Uh, I do have an account... I never use it because I found very quickly that as a writer, I cannot be constrained to 140 characters. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair just, enough. It just can't happen here. Uh-huh. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on and having a chat, Eric. It's, really, it's been great talking to you today, but also we've been talking a lot via Facebook and over the phone, and it's been great to get your opinions, and it's it's really kind of... I think you're a really thought-provoking person because we've had very deep conversations on training methodology over the last few days. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I actually had a student say to me one day, um, you're not trying to teach me how to train, are you? You're trying to teach me how to think. <laughs> and, and my wife 
who was standing there said, you know, that really ought to be your slogan. I'm not here to teach mm-hmm. you how to train. I'm here to teach you how to think. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's very kind of you to say that because really that's what I hope to do through my writing and, uh, and through all of my efforts. Uh, I don't want you to do your dog training the way I do my dog training. I want you to think about the material that's out there and go do your own work and work with your dog and learn and observe and think and do good work. Uh, that's really what I hope. If I can cause you to think a little differently and read a few things, mm-hmm. that's great. And if you can come back and teach me something new, even better. Brilliant. We were talking about goals of the dog training community, but that sounds like your own personal goal there. It is. Yeah, and, brilliant. And I think if, if more people had that attitude, we'd have less fights on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which would be a good result. Exactly. <laughs> All right, thanks, Eric. Great talking to you. Thanks, Nick.